Hey guys, it's Nathan. This is episode 42 of The Nathan Seawood Show. Live and direct. The Nathan Seawood Show. Personal conversations with powerful men. Well, welcome to the show, guys, where every week we're having deep, vulnerable, and unedited conversations with men who have overcome adversity to thrive in their business and their lives. I'm excited to come to you live on video this week for the first time. I'm in a very snowy Brooklyn in New York, and I'm loving the snow. I've been wishing for it the whole month that I've been here, and the locals hate when I say that because the snow really disrupts their whole flow in their community, but I'm so excited that it's snowing. I'm going to go and see some of the snow in Central Park later on, and uh, it's just awesome. I hope you have an amazing week, only a few weeks to Christmas, and one thing I want to do on this episode is share with you, or going forward, I want to share with you more of the things and products and stuff that I use in my life and when I'm traveling that make my life a whole lot easier and share them with you, and hopefully by doing that, I can get you guys a discount and you can experience some of the things that I get to do, some of the cool adventures and exciting things I get to do in my life. The first one I want to share with you is a company called Unsettled. A lot of people always ask me, how do you live this life where you just travel full time, always see you in a different city, in a different country all the time? One of the ways that makes it really easy for me is I do it through Unsettled. And Unsettled is this really cool company that organizes month-long adventures in different countries for people that are transitioning between careers and have some time off, or entrepreneurs that have the ability to work remotely, or just professionals that want to take a month off and work remotely and do it from another city or another country and have promised their boss that they'll be just as productive, even though they're in an amazing spot somewhere in the world. So I did this in Colombia in August, and it was incredible. I, I had so much fun in Colombia and they made the, the journey so easy. They take care of your apartment. There's somebody waiting for you at the airport, which if you've done much travel, you know when you go to a, a country that you're not used to, it's really nice to have somebody meet you there and, and just take care of that part, especially if you've come on a long haul flight. And you get an amazing apartment. My apartment was beautiful. had an amazing view over Medellin in Colombia where I was living. They take care of a SIM card that's packed full of data for you so you can put that straight in your phone and you're up and going. You have unlimited Wi-Fi and internet and they organize an office space for you. So if you have a, a job that needs an office, you can use the office anytime you like. And the cool thing is there's about 20 or 30 people from around the world that are also doing this in the, the month that you're there. So you have this instant network of people. You don't need to know anybody. There's always someone that wants to go for dinner, go for drinks, go and do a tour, which it's just great. It's such an awesome way to travel. And especially as more and more people are looking to live this kind of life and run their business from anywhere in the world, this uh, company Unsettled has got the great, you know, great solution for that. So I reached out to them to get you guys a discount. They said, yeah, no problem. The packages start from $2,000 for a month, which is super cheap. And if you mention the promo code friends of Unsettled and then the Nathan C would show, they're going to give you $150 off straight away. So you're going to get a discount just because you listen to the show, which I think is super cool. So go and check them out. I'll put the notes in the show notes. Beunsettled.co is their website and go and check them out. Uh, this week on the show, I was excited to talk to Anthony Trucks. For those of you in America, you might be familiar with the name Anthony Trucks. It's because he was uh, one of the top NFL players in the league, uh, played for three of the biggest football teams in America. And to be honest, I know nothing about NFL. And I was very honest with Anthony about that. I said, look, I know nothing about NFL. A bunch of my people in New Zealand won't know anything about NFL. And so he explains a lot about the game and the background and some of the behind the scenes stuff. Some of the things that are really interesting about what goes on in the locker room. How do the contracts work? How do you get selected for a team? You know, is it really that cutthroat? So you're going to hear Anthony talk all about the NFL. And on a more personal level, Anthony is a foster kid. And so he explains what it means to grow up in a foster family and how he was able to break the mold of the stereotype that foster kids tend to struggle, drop out of school and don't do that well. So 
he explains how he was able to do that and live this incredible successful life that he has and now that he's a personal trainer and runs his own gym how he's managed to make that business so successful so as always we start off when i ask uh, anthony to take me back and give me a rundown of his upbringing and his life so enjoy this very personal conversation with the powerful anthony uh, the big thing for me is I, it's odd. I tell people I became an entrepreneur at three years old. Like it sounds weird. Like it, it's just, even when I say it, it always does, but it's like a, like a serious thing. So for me, my first moments of life are being given away in a foster care, like my first memory. Uh, my mom pretty much said, I don't, you know, I don't love my children. And so what she did is she called the foster services and put us into foster care. And so wow. I, uh, I started my life at three years old being given away. And so I had this feeling of, of, you know, not being good enough, not knowing what tomorrow brought, literally feeling like a lost on an island which is pretty much how you feel when you start something big. And so from three to six, I was uh, bounced around from house to house. And in this, the foster care system, it's pretty much, it's like, you know, I don't know if you guys have like orphanages, that kind of feeling, but it's like you and these people that don't, they don't care about you, your paycheck. And so I was, I was beaten and I was starved and I was tortured and I had a lot of weird things happen, nothing sexual, thankfully. Um, but like, it just made you feel like small. And so by the time I was six years old, I was closed off from the world. I had no thoughts of, of like wanting to enjoy my life because I never thought it was possible. All I'd known is I'm just, you know, I'm a dog being pushed around. Nobody cares about me. Six years old, I happened to uh, a house that would be my house. And what they do is they pick you up and just drop you off randomly. So you have no idea, like, is this house going to be one that's good? Is it bad? Where am I going? You show up one day and all of a sudden your stuff's just pretty much out there on the side of the road and they got someone in the car like, let's go. So I get picked up, I get dropped off at this house and it's my family this day. The unique thing is I'm a black man and my entire family's all white. So I have these these interesting, you know, racial diversity things to deal with as a kid growing up of, you know, being called racial slurs. And, you know, there's just seven of us like, oh, table for six, like this kid couldn't be with you. So never really feeling part of the whole. And and I kind of just was doing my whole outside journey. And then for honestly, 11 years, I dealt with this. And uh, by the time I got to 14, I was pretty much tired of it. My real mom, my biological mom was not in the household, but she had what's called parental rights. So she can choose what I do and do not do. And the tough part about that was that I wanted to do a lot of sports and I wanted to have fun, but she out of spite and she's kind of a little bit loopy would never let me do anything. And it kind of sucked. And so now what I had to do is, you know, get up in front of a judge and look her in her eyes and say, I no longer want you to be my mom anymore. And it was just this hard thing to do because I had to make this decision and it's tough to make it at 14, but it gave me freedom. And for the first time in all my life, I knew that the pillow I woke up on was the same one I go to sleep on. I mean, I didn't have that kind of solidarity and, and base of like feeling like I, I was going to be there for 14 years of my life. And so at this point where it's like, this is home, I get to do something that most people don't really care about. It's play football, American football, a little different than rugby. Uh, <laughs> you pretty much put a helmet on. There's 11 guys in the field. We want to take the ball to the other side of the field. That's it. <laughs> I mean, nice. you throw it, you kick it, you tackle people. Uh, and I, I I played this game. But here's the crazy part. Like other people that start these, these you know, ideation type things, you want to be something great, the entrepreneurs of the world. You get to this point where something that you love, you suck at, so you contemplate giving up. It's too hard. So for me, I love this game of football. I was horrible at it, and I was like, I, was like, I can't do it. I'm gonna give it up, and I literally did. I, I got to the point where, you know, for me, I'm a foster kid, and statistically, if you go to any prison in America, 75% of the inmates are former foster kids. 1% hmm. of the foster kids in, in just California will ever go to college. One, like less than 1%. And there's hundreds of thousands of us. Like we're not set up to do very well. And so for me, I'm like, I'm just chalking this up. Like my biological mom was, you know, out of the picture. My adoptive mom was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. It's an autoimmune disease. And so like life is it's just tough and I've chalked it up. But I'm sitting in this English class, Mr. Howell's English class, the back right corner desk. And there's these, these two girls sitting next to me on this love seat he had put in there. 
one girl is talking to the other girl and they're going back and forth and I'm pretty much half asleep with a park over my head. They don't even know I'm listening. And one girl out of whatever she's saying, I hear the statement. She says, well, the reason I'm so bad is because I'm in foster care. I was like, wow, as much as I hadn't said it out loud, that's the conversation I was having in my head. You know, I'm, I'm going to look at my life one day and, and look back and say, well, because I was in foster care, I'm a bad dad, a bad father, I'm a druggie, I'm, I'm a, a criminal. Like, like that can't be my life. Like, there's no way that I can I can live a life and do that. And I remember going home that day and just, it kind of just ate at me. And I remember standing up, looking in a mirror across from my 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 wall, and I just I said to myself, having no clue what it meant, you're going to be great. I didn't know what it meant. I don't know how to be great. I was like, I'm going to be great. And what I knew was I got to put effort into something, right? And I wanted to be great at football. So I did this thing that a lot of people don't actually do. And it's kind of interesting they don't. But I put an incredible amount of work into something before I knew I was going to be successful at it. Zip. I had to grind because I knew this. If I don't put the effort in, I'm not going to luck into being great at football, having a great career. Like, it's not going to happen. I can't luck into being a phenomenal athlete. It's just not going to happen. So I got to work at it. But working doesn't guarantee success. It's just the crazy part. So I was like, I'm just going to try to work. And so I grinded. I ran every route I could run. I got, I was sprinting up and down the hills. I was lifting every weight I could lift. Like, I was in the weight room at like 13, 14, 14, 15, having no idea literally at all what I was doing. But then I came back the next year. And I was faster and I was stronger and I was meaner. And like my thought was, you hadn't earned the right to beat me at this period. Like whatever route we ran, whatever, like we'd get back up. If you beat me, I'd do it again until I beat you because you didn't earn the right to beat me. And I ended up going from there and sucking, not being very good. So the next year got moved up two levels. Um, I then got a college football scholarship to play at the University of Oregon. Ended up playing in the NFL National Football League for the Buccaneers, Redskins, and Steelers. Like life progressed on. I came home. I opened a gym, a training facility. It was like you know ten thousand square feet. Uh, I've consulted for hundreds of thousands of dollars. I now travel the world and speak. I'm an author. I have a bunch of online products. I coach people. I just got done doing a whole hour and a half training for a large corporation in SoCal, Southern California. And so all this stuff came from a realization I had at that, that year when I was 15. And what it was was, hey, if you suck at something in work, there's a possibility if it happened in the football field, there's a possibility you could do it in life. And this thought was like, gosh, you know, the one thing I didn't have until I all of a sudden worked and got was this trust in my ability to pursue things. Once I was able to be like, move to varsity, I'm like, well, shoot, I trust. What if I try to go for college? And like, what if I try to go to play in the NFL? Like I had these trust like in myself and my abilities. I'm like, what if I wanna open a gym? What if I want to walk into a corporation and say, pay me to help you? And I got a quarter million dollar contract to, to basically create something as a nobody, right? And it's all because I, I had this thought and it's it's what's stemmed my entire you know company from the thought. It's called trust your hustle. And for me now in my life, I trust in my abilities to create and develop and help. And so now what I do is I go into the world and I take all the insight I've got and I deliver it in ways that people can consume it and apply it to their own lives. And people ask, you know, why do you do this? A lot of questions I get is like, why do you even do that in the first place? Why don't you just stick to your gym and stick to your speaking? And then I look back on my life and then when I was, you know, a couple of years ago, I was kind of going through some craziness and struggles. I had been divorced. I was going through some craziness there. My gym business was kind of up and down. Uh, I lost my mom, uh, my adoptive mom. I was in the room holding her right hand as she took her final breath. And it was like those moments of just, it's finite. It's, it's like, this is life. It was, it was here and literally just gone. And I started thinking about everything that, that is and everything that I am. And I'm like, God, what am I supposed to be here for? If this is life, what is my life supposed to be about? It's like those, those moments you start contemplating. And I realized that at this moment, it was something where it's, we all get this point. It's trying to figure out who we are and why we're here. And I realized this is, is my mom 
impacted me. The reason I am doing what I do, the way I talk, the way I walk, the way I, I am able to even not be a statistic of you know the, the foster care system is because my mom impacted me. And I realized like there's a deep level of love and compassion in my heart to do some of the same for the world, like to give to people who aren't my blood. She wasn't my blood. I wasn't her blood. I wasn't her kin, but she loved on me so unconditionally. And I was like, dude, I just want to impact people the same way. And I realized that everybody is someone to someone. Like you're someone to someone in your life. I'm a father to kids. I'm a husband to my wife. I'm a brother to my brother. It's like I'm someone. And in that, I have an impact. And so I want to impact someone who impacts, which is everybody. And so in my life now, man, I I create and push myself out there to reach more of the world. So one, share my story so people understand where I came from and why I can actually help them. And two, pour my soul out to fill them up as best I can so they walk out into their life better for having met me. Incredible story. Uh, first of all, congratulations on your success, what you've achieved. Thanks. I can't even imagine, you know, as thinking being put into foster care at three years old, I can't even you know, wrap my head around that. And it's also, you said that's your first memory. It's kind of the age where you're having your first memories. And it's mm-hmm. almost like if you were adopted out as soon as you were born, it would be in a weird way easier than yeah. actually, you know, having that awareness that that was happening. Um, yeah, my youngest sister was actually adopted as a, as a newborn, so she didn't experience it. But I, I remember all of it oddly. I remember the layout of my house. I could tell you what my mom was wearing that day. It's it's super weird. And do you have any contact with her now? No. Uh, she last, so when I was 14, I said I didn't talk to her. I somehow got in contact her. She found me when I was in college because I'm playing on the national television at the University of Oregon. Like, you can find me. Yeah. And somehow got in a phone call with her. And she had moved two hours north of me. It was really weird. And I talked to her and the last conversation I had was going over why I was in foster care. I was like, you know, I'm, I'm 21 years old. I have a son now. I had a son in college at 19, 20. I was like, I just need you to tell me why you gave me away. And her statement was, well, the state of California paid my boyfriend $10,000 to beat me up so they could take you. And, and like, this is kind of, this is how she thinks. This is her thought process. This is what I dealt with for so many years. And I was like, this, I'm not a kid anymore. Like, I don't believe these lies anymore. I need you to tell me. And she kept sticking to the story. So I was like, well, when you feel like in some point in your life, you want to tell me the truth and I'll, I'll talk to you. And since then I haven't talked to her. Last I found out one of my kids, they're on a baseball team and one of the coaches, his brother's what's called a skip tracer and he finds anybody. So he's like, what's her name? Uh, where, when was like, when was she born her birthday? Like, give me an age range and where was she at any given time? I was like, well, in 83, she was here. He's like, got it. And like a week later, he gives me her address, her email. Like she lives out in a, in somewhere in the, the big Island in Hawaii. And I have yet to contact her. I don't know if she still lives there, but that was kind of the last place that he told me she was at. And so I don't talk to her anymore. Don't have any desire to, but you know, I don't know what the rest of the world is going to unfold for my life. Does it still, do you still have that question about why? why she gave you up? Does that still, you know, is it still present inside you? Yeah. Yeah. You know, for a lot of years it was. And I, I, this is what I realized that there's a certain amount of anger that goes with that. When we as people have situations that take place and we can't comprehend the meaning of it, it drives us insane because we're trying to figure out why, like, why did that happen? Why would you do that? Why would you burn me like this? And so you're, you're, you're thinking that for them it was intentional. And when you have that, it creates a lot of anger and a lot of confusion. All we do is just get really pissed. And so what I realized years ago, as I actually found my biological dad, and, and when I first met him, he told me he had no idea I existed. He was so sad and you know so sorry. And then nine years later before he passed, uh, he's like, you know, I just want to let you know that I didn't know. And it's like, gosh, in this moment, I'm like, do I get mad because he lied to me? But then I realized a lot of people in life are, are running through struggling. Like we're all fighting battles. We all have demons. And sadly, most people that even do you wrong, they're trying to do the best they can in those moments. 
And it's it's odd because we won't make sense of it because we never can. We're not that person. But I think when I started realizing that she is just not she's not sound of mind. And in those moments, she was doing whatever she could. I think she might have thought she was doing us something good by giving us away to a different family. But I, I, I can't hold anger, I guess, because it doesn't help me. And then two, I can't hold anger for, towards someone that's really not cognitively there or honestly probably didn't know what she was putting us into. Yeah. And I feel like it's, it's we automatically as humans, we make it all about us. So mm-hmm. there was something wrong with me when, yeah. you know, like you said, I'm guessing it was something in her life that wasn't going well as opposed to it being about you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a crazy, crazy story. So the, the burning question for me is what what was the difference in you that made you say I was going to be great? Like you, you might not have an answer to that question, but I mean, no, I most people don't go that direction, right? They don't have that realization. Yeah. I think for me, it, it's like a, it's like a pot that's that's boiling over right you know it's like if you have you know something that's like maybe you're making something like if it gets hot and boils over eventually it just it has to go somewhere and i think for me what happened was i'd been through so much in my life that i was just fed up like literally i was just like this has got this has got to end this is i can't continue to keep living my life and feeling this way uh i realized that for me the, the biggest piece that you know that i had was just this comprehension that for me in my life like it wasn't going to get any better i was i was literally getting fed up with everything and when you get to that point, it's like, I got to make a decision. I can keep going the same way by doing the same things I'm already doing, or I can do something different for a possibility of something better. And all I realized was like, it's not going to happen with me sleeping in class and, you know, and running around the wrong people. It's only going to happen if I choose to do right and be in the right situation and work hard. And that, that was just a weird, like simple thoughts. So I was like, all right, well, it's time to do right. It's time to do better. And so I started like doing everything I could that I thought was the right stuff. And just leave, just doing the stuff you think's right, it usually gets you closer to the right stuff. I mean, literally, immediately you're going to be moving closer to it. You may not be already there, but then it, it, when I'm in the weight room, I got people telling me how to lift weights better, right? But because I put myself there, I'm getting better. I'm trying to run routes. So a coach comes out and says, you know, when you're doing this route here, do this. And they start teaching you. So putting yourself in the situation, even if you don't know how to do it perfectly, you'll find that you'll find other ways to improve upon what you're already doing, but you can't improve what you're not already doing. Yeah. So just keep putting yourself in those situations, even though you don't know what you're doing. Just keep taking yeah, action. Yeah. I mean, what's the worst going to happen? You're not going to get worse, worse. I mean, you're just going to get less better, but you're still getting better. And then when you find a way to like, okay, I'm, I got this, what can I improve here? Now you have something more concrete to work from than the thought of wanting to do something different. Now you're working on something and you can improve specifics. And your foster parents, were they supportive? Like when you started this journey towards football, were they pretty yeah. supportive? Uh, they were. I mean, I'm actually the only athlete in the family. <laughs> like, I'm <laughs> the only one that has any sports background, if you want to call it that. But they were. I mean, my mom, I, I at a point, was kind of like her legs. You know, she was in a wheelchair by my sophomore year of high school. And by my senior year, my you know fourth year, uh, I pretty much was, you know, active and she wasn't moving. And so for her to be able to watch me move, like, I felt like I was out there kind of letting her live vicariously. So very supportive. When I went to play at Oregon, my dad would get off and, you know, I've worked you know, I guess you guys do 24 hour time frame for us. We, we call it like, you know, two in the morning. You guys may say like two o'clock. And yeah. and then he would he would drive up straight up to the games. And we started at like 1400 hours like he would just drive straight like eight hours, middle of the night, right off of work and just be there for the game for kickoff and then wow. sleep after the game. Wow. But yeah, they were there, man. They put in work. Yeah. That must have been a good feeling. I mean, people believe. Yeah. In you. Very loved. Yeah. And so can you. Tell me a little bit more about your journey into the the NFL. So the steps that it took and like the little moments when yeah. you could see it happening, when you were getting those little wins. <laughs> yeah. Well, those that that's a funny game, man. The NFL is a weird bird. <laughs> uh, 
you know, for me, I, I had, you know, I had no thoughts that I would actually play in the NFL, to be honest. It never was something where in my head I'm like, oh, I'm going to go and play in the league. I just wanted to keep doing whatever the next great thing was. So from high school I was going to college. And then in college, I was like, well, I wasn't looking at going to the NFL, but I wanted to be great every game. And if you just do that, if you focus kind of like on the here and now, the rest kind of takes care of itself. Your journey keeps moving. It's like trying to climb a mountain, look at the top of the mountain every time. You're going you're gonna to stumble over stuff because you're not focused on the right thing. So my thought was, I'm going to just be great at this. Now, along that journey, I mean, you run into a lot of haze because then sometimes you do look up and you do get that hope, but then you get ripped away because you stumble. So as I'm going through college, my, my second year in, you know, usually when you go to college, there's guys that have been there before you and they're the starters. You have to earn your spot. So you'd be lucky if by like your sophomore, junior year, you get a chance to start. Uh, as, and so what we did is called a redshirt year. You can go up there. You're there for a year. You don't take your, your time, but you still have four more years to play. So I went there and I did not redshirt. So I played my very first year right out of, out of high school. So I get there and it's a guy that's been there for a few years. He's starting the very next year. It's going to be me, my second year in against the guy who's been there. And this is his fifth year. So if I want to play, like I got a ball, this guy's got three years ahead of me. And I, dude, I put in so much work. I, I knew every person's plays. I knew what I was doing in training camp. I was an animal. I was, I just gave every bit of my soul to be great. Cause like great means not sitting behind somebody else. I got to start. So my true sophomore year, which is the second year in, I win the job. My very first start in college football, I played against Mississippi State. I got to meet my real dad because I'd found him. So I met him, played national television on my first start, and I got a game ball. It's actually up here, like right above me, the game ball from that game. And it was this amazing feeling. And then two weeks later, I tear my right shoulder, done for the season. And it's like, God, like all this stuff it just worked for is now ripped away. I couldn't run. I couldn't wipe my butt or brush my teeth in my right hand. Like it was just, it was a wrap. And so, you know, this, this moment you're like, gosh, what do I do? And, and so I ended up doing just getting rehab and coming back. And the next year I got a little bit better, but then like my senior year, I was like, all right, well, if I'm gonna still be great, then to be great, it's this game. And if I want to be great, the next level, it's the NFL. So what do I got to do to get there? I got a ball. I got to be an animal. And so I went to work. I led the Pac-10 that year in sacks, tackles for loss, forced fumbles, fumbles recovered, all these cool numbers. It's called cool numbers. And uh, <laughs> and I, I did phenomenally and uh, got a chance to play in the NFL, man. I moved on to the next level. When you get there, it's like the NFL, it's not it's not the end. It's the beginning of everything. People think like, oh, you got to the NFL level, the professional. Yeah, you can relate. It's <laughs> yeah, it's not like basketball and, and baseball. You get a contract, they guarantee to pay you that. In football – I, they can sign me in January. Season doesn't start till like September, and you usually don't get paid, and you don't have to get at all. You don't make a dollar until you're playing in the season, and you only get paid week by week in the season in September. So you could be with the team from January to August, right? And you could have a contract for a million dollars. If they cut you or tear your contract up in August, you get nothing of that year. No guarantee. Like money's gone. So eight months of training, and then nothing. Done. And does that Go happen? Home. Oh, yeah, it happened to me right. my, my first year. And I was a rookie, man. I got in and I because they, they take like 100 something to camp and they keep 53. And I got to the last, I think, seven. I was one of the final seven they got rid of that year. They called me back the next year, though, but I was already signed on with the Redskins. So I decided to go there. But yeah, man, it's uh, it's, it's difficult because when you're in there, you're pretty much fighting against people. And it's where I think some of the, the best intangible tools are learned. And so the things that make me different that I hope people can learn from just watching me is a level of consistency past the pain. Because you're going to be in there and your body's going to hurt, everything's going to suck, and you're still going to be having to go up against other people who they still hurt, but they're banging, and they aren't going to take it easy. The world does not take it easy on you, even when you're hurt. And so there's times when I had this guy, he, he just, uh, one of my, my teammates, 
He ran full speed, dove, and then somehow his helmet hit me directly in my quad, front of my leg. We're in training camp with the Redskins, and I could barely walk. But I realized if I take a practice off or if I take some time, like I might go home. And so there's no time for pity. So I pretty much got to tie this thing up, like wrap it on and I got to go. And I kept on practicing for like the next few weeks. It was purple. My leg was purple, but I'm still moving. And here's the crazy part. When you're in there, they don't care if you're hurt. If you're in the game, you better be balling. You have to play. You can't step into the world and say, oh, well, you know, I, I you know, wasn't able to get this thing figured out. So I'm, that's why I can't you know, do this right now. Or I'm sorry, guys, my car went down. I'm a little bit late. Nobody cares. Like we all got problems. Nobody cares. You has still got to show up and be 150% every single time, hurt or not hurt. Because when I'm watching film, if they're watching me on film, they can't see my leg. They just see me going slow. Hmm. So it doesn't matter. And so when I learn those kind of aspects of the game and how to apply it like that, but you got to avoid them. And when you do get hit, pick yourself back up as you can and keep on moving. And that's the game of football. And that's that's something that when you're able to go through kind of fire, you can, you can progress on the next levels. But I don't think you have to have played the NFL to learn what I learned from it. I think some people are like, well, I didn't go through that. How do you learn it? And that's the big thing is you can just learn from listening to people talk about it. What did you, what would be, we be surprised to learn about what goes on behind the scenes or what happens <laughs> at training or lock, you know, what, yeah. what's, what's the, the stuff that the average person doesn't realize? Yeah, it's super cutthroat. Everybody yeah. is, I mean, you think about this, you're going into an environment where somebody's people, all these people, because my teammates, uh, this is all we know. Literally, we know football. We don't know how to go home and be a financial advisor, construction worker. We don't know how to work a regular job. We don't have those skills. All we do is play football. So the fear of, of losing that is huge, which means people will do anything to make sure they don't go home because they don't want you to take food out of their family's mouth. Mm. So when you're in this environment, it's not like in college, you're on the team. No big deal. You're on the squad. You're good. In the NFL, you can go home every single day, every single day. So there is my freshman rookie year. I call rookie year. Um, I'm with the Buccaneers and there's uh, the position that I play is like a sandbacker, an outside backer, like middle backer kind of area. And so what I do is, uh, is I go in and I, you know, I'm trying to figure these plays out, but they were kind of difficult. So I asked the teammate, hey, what do you do on this, you know, this play? Now, they're my position figuring I would ask them because they know. He's like, oh, yeah, you do this, this and laid it all out for me. Right. And then sure enough, it came up with my play. My thing I didn't. I did what he told me to do. And I got reamed it was dead wrong, completely wrong. As I walk off the field, he kind of looks at me and then kind of like looks away. Like, that was that. Like, you got it. And I can't go and tell him, but so-and-so told me, like, you know, that you can't do that. It just gives this realization of, like, you got to know who you're talking to. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and yet you have to do your own work. Now, if I'd have studied the playbook the way I should have, if I'd have known my stuff, that doesn't happen. I get an opportunity to go. But because I didn't do it myself, I was relying on somebody else, you know, to, to give me something incredibly important didn't pan out. So there's, there's some cutthroat stuff that happens there. I mean, there's, I mean, I've dealt with stuff that, that have situations like legal issues with the NFL. I, I probably shouldn't even openly talk about, but <laughs> they're, a, they, they are a, a great league because it provides the opportunity for us to watch a great game and for people to get a good career. But at the same time, there are people in the background getting screwed heavily, but you know, what are you going to do? Yeah. That's the business. Um, and I guess there's, there's millions of dollars on the table as well. Oh yeah, probably more than a million. Just yeah, hundreds of millions, tons of money in it. Yeah. So how do you? Well, what's the balance between? Well, maybe it's not different from the business world, but where you've got a whole lot of individuals just trying to prove mm -hmm. themselves, but somehow have to become a team each week. 
Yeah, it's tough. Well, I think the biggest thing you have to comprehend is, is that you have to rely on the rest of the people for you to do your thing. I mean, in the NFL, once you've made cuts, you're one of the 53, you're part of the team. Nobody's worried about you because they're all there. Prior to that, it sucks. When you're in there, it's like, okay, we're good. But when it comes to a bunch of people who are all individuals, that that's just life. I mean, whether it's a family trying to be you know, part of the team, it's saying, hey, I know what my job is. I'm going to do my job the best I can. And doing my job, I'm going to benefit everybody else out here. But if somebody else isn't doing their job, not only is it hurting the rest of the squad, but I can't do my job. We all got to extend ourselves outside of our jobs to do more of yours. And we don't have energy for that. And so in football, if you ever see like, you know, if you ever watch a game, people just take off and they run untouched. It's because someone didn't do their job. Somebody trusted that they would be there and they weren't. And then the whole team lost. And so it happens everywhere in life, especially in corporations, businesses, careers, everything we do is where when you have people on the team that are individuals, that, that's fine to be an individual, but realize that your part of the puzzle has got to be filled because if not, everybody hurts. And when you have people that comprehend that and have a great deal of respect for that community, that cohesion, everything gels well. When you have people that are only looking out for themselves, they'll step outside of that and they'll do other people's jobs to show up so that person looks bad or can't do their job and then nobody trusts that person, nobody trusts the other person. It's just, it becomes a big tangled web of craziness. So when you have a bunch of individuals, you need to have individuals who still have a, a mindset of helping the team. And what did you learn about coaching and great coaches? Oh man, it's a lot. <laughs> well, there's uh, Stephen Covey says, you have to treat everybody the same by treating everybody different. All right, they're all different people. And they all deserve something different. I think the best coaches I've had are the ones I understood. Everybody ticks a little bit differently. We learn a little bit differently. We operate a little bit differently. We respond differently. And so when I had coaches that I was I was with, that you can tell some that they're just in it for them and that how they feel and work. And then some of them realize that the best way to be in it for themselves is for their people, their squad to do well. So some coach like, I want to look good. I want to make sure my guys do good. But they, they focus on themselves and everything ties back to, I told you this and I did this. And how come I, you know, it's, it's I, as opposed to how can I best help you figure your piece out? Because you should be doing this. And then when you get this done, they can do that. And you can see that the shifting of perspective from, I told you to do this to, how can I best help you? How can you get this figured out? And when you got that, it's like, oh, well, I didn't know that. And they're a little bit more patient, a little bit more understanding. They're not, the best coaches aren't passive though. Like there's coaches that'll tell you what you want to hear, some that tell you what you need to hear, right? And then for me as a coach now, I I try to make sure I'm never the yes man. Like, oh, it's okay. I want to push you and challenge you because if you told me you want to do something or you're here for a specific reason, you don't do it. It's my job to love you enough to tell you what you need to hear. And then when that takes place, it's not doing it because I am going to look bad. I want to do it because I want you to look great. And so positioning that that perspective on that allows you to to say, okay, hey, we're going to work on this. I'm not going to let you bypass this. We got to work on this, right? And then this is how you can and being very patient and progressive as we move forward to help that person. Mm. Yeah, it's a great lesson. I think it's such a skill to learn how to keep serving you instead of thinking, what do I want to get out of this? Or how do I get myself, you know, how do I get what I want? Just looking like, how can I serve that other person? And that's, mm -hmm. that's pretty uncommon out in the world. You know, yeah. everybody's just like, what's in it for me? But there's so much value in, in serving people. A little bit of fame comes with the NFL. <laughs> how did that go? How did you handle that? Well, you know, it depends on where you're at. It's interesting because when you're at a team, that team knows you. There's different guys. Don't get me runners. Guys are on commercials and you know they're on TV shows. They're way different level of fame. Um, but for me, like in my hometown or even around the town of the team I was with, like people know who you are. And so I think for me, the cool thing was I never at any point in time lost who I am. Like I think some guys lose the aspect of you're still a human being. You're still just a guy on this planet. Like you, you're not. You're not a god. You know. 
And uh, it didn't affect me in that aspect because I always I've always had like a servant's heart. I'm a man of faith, and I feel like I'm I'm here for more than just playing a game of football, you know. So in the aspect of the fame, I, I just pretty much was always trying to be the the one warm, you know, solid guy. There's more. I'm not saying I'm the only. There's a ton of good guys out there, but fame didn't change me in that sense. Like even now to this day, like I'm still just me. Like I'm gonna be a dude, a regular guy my entire life. I do great things, and I and I'm seen by some people as this great figure, but. I want to show them I'm still human. Like I'm still just like you. I just have achieved a little bit different. I want to do a little bit different than you. Well, that's a great attitude. And how does how does the transition go as you leave the NFL? What's the moment when it's you know it's time to go? Uh, <laughs> it, you're never somebody expecting tells it. you. <laughs> Sucks, man. For me, it was an injury. I lost my career to, to a shoulder turn, like a torn shoulder on my left side. Mm. Uh, and it's it's not what I wanted to have happen. It's it's when it was done and all, you know, I, I couldn't go back. And so it was pretty much taken away from me before I wanted to be done. And, and the transition's hard. Uh, I was about 20, maybe uh, 23, 4, 4 in that era. No, no, no. Might have been 25. I think like 25 is when it took place. Mm. Sounds about, yeah, about 25. Uh, and, and then the, the, the average crazy, player would play to what if they were good, healthy? Uh, the average plays are like 25, 26 is the average. You know, yeah. the guys that play longer, like the average is about three years in the NFL. So that's why I'm like 25, 26. My third year, I got hurt in my third year. Uh, and that's pretty much how it works. And and then the transition stuff, because, uh, and this is what it'd be anybody, not just sports. I know the military takes place. It, literally anything where you've given a large amount of your time to something for it to be taken away and you have no way of using that skill set anymore, that is hard. Because it's not just the lack of skill set, it's the lack of, of self, the lack of knowing who you are. It's a scary place to be. So for me, when I was done with the NFL, like, okay, all my life that I, you know, my, my adult life from high school here, I've been known as Anthony, the football player from 15 years old, Anthony, Trucks, 15 player, you know, the football player. So 10, 11 years of my life, that's me. And so now it's like, all right, who am I? It's also, this, it's also this thing that saves you, you know, this thing, this, this, yeah. this sport is what turned your life around at 15, Everything. 14. Mm-hmm. It gave me everything. It gave me a sense of self-worth. It gave me a sense of, uh, of just, you know, I think a sense of knowledge that there's more out there than than what meets the eye in terms of the person's abilities. So I, I, I found myself and I grew up in the game of football and then it's gone. And now I can't do that anymore. You know, I can't run around and hit people and get paid for it anymore. <laughs> so <laughs> so it's like that that transition is hard for everybody. And that's why so many guys like in America, 75, uh, I think 75 percent of guys go bankrupt in the first three years after leaving the NFL. Wow. Yeah, it's tough. I had the, the same thing. So I was uh, an airline pilot and I just left that career in uh, mm-hmm. July. I'm the same age as you. And mm-hmm. same thing. I took my first flying lesson when I was 12, you know, we yeah. followed when I was 16 and it was my passion and it was, um, it was more than just a job. You know, it was, yeah. it was the thing when I struggled at school, it was the thing I knew I would do once I left school. And yeah. so it became like a very defining thing. So I've been going through this exploration myself the last six months of when I take that, you know, I'm Nathan the pilot. So when I take that away, Mm-hmm. Who am I below that? And it's been it's it's hard because I don't know, right? I don't know the answer to start with. And yeah. then it's also an amazing journey because you realize mm-hmm. that you're not a job. You're much more than yeah. a job, and yet you get to tap into what who you truly are. I agree. So how was that journey for you? Because it's it's the same in flying, right? You you, <laughs> you can't slowly ease out of flying. You you fly yeah. planes one day and then you're not the next. You, you can't do yeah. a little bit of little bit of airline flying. It's not really yeah. possible. Let's say you're tackling people and you're not, you're not tackling people. <laughs> it's hard, man. It is a, it's a really hard transition. It's, I mean, cause at the end of the day, you're, you're trying to figure out how do you get that same high 
for you, literally high in the air, right? Yeah. <laughs> but for me, it's like how to get that same high of like just feeling amazing. I mean, there's nothing like standing out in front of, you know, on this field with, you know, your, your full uniform on and a crowd of people cheering. And then how do you replace that? I mean, literally, there's, there's no way. And so what you try to do is find something that gives you that same, that same bump, but also like you come from a place where people, they worship you in certain ways. And so how do you feed from something different? And that was the big thing for me is trying to figure out, well, how do I, how do I feed from something that, that's different? And how do I get that same feeling of life? Like I want to feel alive like that. And a lot of us, we can't find that thing and we can't figure out how to do it because the world outside of the football, it's like, it's a big world and everybody wants some of the same stuff. So in football, it's like, yeah, you got a chunk of people going after when you get to that point, you're at that. But now you got to start over, all over. I got to start from scratch and find a way to get to that same pace. You know? And so incredibly difficult and scary. But I think for me, at the end of the day, when I look back on it, it, it was something where I, I had a bigger purpose just because I had a kid. I was like, I can't just be this guy that's floating around trying to get on a bunch of teams doing workouts, not make any money to figure something out. And I also realized that I had a great passion to give back and – my degrees in kinesiology and one of the things I knew was like, well, I, I love the game of football. I want to share it with people because it gave me so much. Wanted to do the same thing for kids that were like me. And so I, I started training a lot of youth athletes, um, built a gym where I trained a lot of professional athletes and did a whole lot of, you know, this building up of other people in the physical standpoint. And then realized like there's a lot to me more than just the physical. There's a lot more in terms of the, the mental aspect of what I, I think, how I think, how I teach, what I want to put into the world, what I want people to take from my life. And so it all kind of transitioned to a different flow of you know, finding out my purpose that is now of, of actually speaking, traveling, sharing, and coaching and, and the mental aspect and like the business side of it all. And so for me, it's it's, it's been a fun transition, but it's been really hard. Uh, but at the same time, I think for some people, it becomes almost impossible because they never latch onto something else, which is what I did. I latched onto something else that gave me that, that same sense, gave me the same high. Mm. And how did you figure out, did it take it a little bit to figure out what you wanted to do? Like you, you got straight into sports, kinesiology, giving back. But did you have to make a few mistakes before you oh, really yeah. settled? <laughs> yeah, yeah and, I, and it's part of the journey. I mean, when I got done, I came home and I had my degree. So if you have your degree in kinesiology, it's like going to the world of training. It's the natural thing. You know, sports player teaching other athletes. That's, you know, brand new. <laughs> <laughs> Not everybody does it. So when I came home, I was like, that. that's what I'm going to do. I just, I love talking. I, w- I wanted to be around the game as best I could. And that was the closest I could get to the game was training other athletes. You know, I, I didn't want to be a coach for a team. I want to be home. I don't want to travel around. So I built a gym and that's, that's kind of what I did. But I think that was kind of a microcosm of the world. I needed to be around that to do what I do now. I needed to understand how to, in a business sense, operate a business, how to take care of the finances, how to be able to build it and grow it and scale it and how to deal with, you know, my employees and different personalities and interactions, how to deal with clients, how to how to be able to make them happy and serve at a high level. I need to learn how you know everything operates around me, how the, my work-life balance operates because I hadn't really had that. I mean, I'm 25, but I've never had a job job, you know? So this, it taught me so much and I, it exposed me to the rest of the world. So I learned in this world, like how to start speaking. So I was speaking on fitness and teaching and training there and it kind of gave me a bump, right? And then I wanted to write. So I kind of got in a book in the fitness space. And then from there, I kind of saw a different opportunity with the information I had. And I just took the same opportunity, same information, and just kind of created more stuff in a different way. And it's transitioned me into doing a lot more, but the, it's it's all stemming off that same baseline. Can you remember any of the failures along the way? Any of the, the marked failures? Oh, 
Heck yeah, man. There was a time, so it was my second second year in business. Oh no, no, first year. Ooh, it was a first year in business. This is one of the worst ones. Uh, I had I had, you know rent that I was paying. I think rent was something like six thousand a month or something like that. It was some weird number, and uh, I had you know maybe seven thousand dollars in a month coming in. No, no, actually, it was sorry. It was yeah, it was seven. I was bringing in four. <laughs> that was bad. <laughs> So it was like four thousand, seven thousand a month. I was bringing four thousand a month in. I had to pay some people that were doing some stuff with me, and then I also had to at the same time pay the power to get the power on. So I was going negative every month, and I at one point for three months didn't pay the rent, and it was it was dumb. I, I don't even know how I did it to now, but I'm like they're not going to notice. It'll be okay. <laughs> I catch up. Yeah, I literally didn't send a check in for three months, like a whole quarter, and they they caught up, <laughs> and so I didn't have any money, and so they reach out and. The way they reached out was this. I'm sitting at my front desk and all of a sudden this this motorcycle, you know, rides up and my you had the 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 door, you had the desk, you had the, like literally the street right there, like a sidewalk step away. The guy kind of Harley rolls up. I don't know who he is. He gets off the bike, grabs something from his little pouch, walks in, says, Are you Anthony? I say, Yeah, hands me this envelope, walks out. I open it. I was being served for eviction. Landlord was kicking me out. And I had two months. To come up with sixteen thousand dollars, I was making maybe seven thousand dollars a month. I think it was like you know four thousand a month before everything, uh, and I had two weeks to pay it, or I'm going to be out, and I'm still liable for the next few years of rent. So we're talking bankruptcy. It's literally wow. what's going on. So I'm like, all right, I have got to figure out how in the world to make this all come together. And I could have easily quit, you know, filed bankruptcy, and moved on and did some other job. I was like, I got to figure this out. Like I got to figure this out, and so. Roundabout, I got a hold of somebody that's a consultant. I spent my last four thousand dollars I had in the bank account on this consultant, drained my accounts because NFL money's gone. Just you know, like there's no money sitting around. Right. Like I, I opened a gym, it was gone. Like I paid a lot of money to get it started. So two weeks later, I, uh, I went from owing the landlord money to where I now didn't have to pay him just yet, renegotiate the lease, and then. That month, I think we brought in maybe four thousand. The next month was like seven thousand. The next month, we brought in like eighteen. Three months later, we're bringing in twenty-seven thousand dollars a month. Pay, took care of paying off all the debt I had to the landlord. Uh, had hired new staff. We actually ended up moving two years later to a big, nice, like ten thousand square foot facility, uh, and it was a complete shift. And all I did was this really simple thing that's like business-wise, most people don't think of. But I got a consultant. I got help, and then I, I did a really streamlined or I literally called and said, hey. I have this gym. You may not know it exists, but it does. This is what I do. Would you like to come in? Cold call, damn near. Then I call people who knew what I did, but hadn't come in yet. Hey, I know you know what we do. I haven't seen you in here yet. Would you like to come in? Then I call people that knew what I did, said, hey, need some help. Do you know anybody that wants to come train? I know you love it. And within the next few weeks, everything just exponentially grew. It was that simple. And it's something that I think most people will avoid because they're looking for some simple, safe, and easy to do solution to fix things. But it was a hard one. It was hard to call people and say, look, I need some help. And we're trying to grow this. But what's crazy is most people, they, they want to help you. They will actually, and it's a few that won't, don't be wrong. It's not everybody wants to help, but most people will help you. But not if you don't ask for it. And so I asked for help and it all panned out. And, and it's been a crazy ride since then. Don't get me wrong. There were times like, I think three and a half, almost four years later, I was back in a worse hole. Like it's, I think uh, even worse, I had torn my Achilles playing flag football. I was just playing around. My gym wasn't doing too well. We had to move to a small location because something happened with a weird landlord. So I owed rent at my gym. I owed rent at my house and I had a torn Achilles and I couldn't work. And I had $20 in my bank account on Christmas Eve. Broke, man. I was, I was struggling, let's put it that way. 
And I got to this point where I actually had to borrow money from my ex-wife to be able to, to pay the bills to pay for our, our kids to live in my house. And this I'm a man. Like, I got this. And it just was a horrible place to be. And so the next year I was like, dude, I can't I can't be like this anymore. This cannot be my life. And so the next year I, I put myself in a crazy grind mode. We brought in like four hundred and six thousand dollars that year. Just just did some craziness to get my life back on track. And it's been since then it's been good. <laughs> but I've had my fair share of ups and downs. Wow. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that because it's uh, we don't always hear those stories, right? Like on the the path of yeah, success, so. the overnight success story. But it, it yeah, seems it's like a, you did yeah. the same thing. Like when you started talking about cold calling, like my palms started getting sweaty, and I was like, "Oh man!" Like getting on the phone with people is terrifying. I don't know why, but it's, yeah. uh, that really scares me. But same thing it's with normal. football, I guess, right? Like just just grinding out and doing what other people aren't willing to do. That's it. That literally is all I think life is comprised of is moments where we do more than other people are willing to do. Do we go past the line that they stop? And and we all we all know when that line is. It's the line that's that's inside of us. It's like, oh, I don't want to do anymore. And because so many people feel that and then stop there, that's, that's where the whole world sits. And we all make great excuses to be stuck there. But they're not good enough excuses for us not to have what we want. Even if it's great, I don't care if it's a real excuse. It's still an excuse and you still don't have what you want. But we make excuses that sound good so we can sleep better at night and allow ourselves not to feel bad about what we haven't done, right? So for me, the big thing is realizing I don't have room for excuses. I don't have time to uh, – I don't have time literally at all to be okay being okay. And I'm going to find a solution to move past. And when somebody else stops that line, great. I am so incredibly happy that if we're chasing the same thing, that you stop because it means that it's way less competition at the next level for me. And that's where they say the, uh, the the higher road is the one less traveled. Like that's, that's that's it. The road of success is the one less traveled because so many people are in that bottom road trying to get through everything. Once you break free, you roll. It's about resiliency. Oh, a lot. I think resiliency is a part of it because that means you go through stuff. But a lot of it's just consistency, mm. discipline and consistency. Because there's this guy, Bo Eason, who has this, uh, this great statement. He says, look, everything you want in your life is already yours. I mean, literally anything you can think of, you already have it. The only thing that's going to stop you from having it is the moment you quit. So don't stop. And that's part of the resiliency, consistency, and discipline to stick on to stuff. And when you can master that, Darren Hardy has a, uh, what's it called? It's a book, I want to say, Compound Effect. Mm -hmm. And he talks, he says, I don't care what it is we do, give it enough time, I will beat you. (laughs) I don't care if it's anything. I don't care what it is, I give it enough time, you will not see me quit and I will beat you. 100% of the time, he says. And it's a simple statement, like Will Smith talks about, I'm going to, you're going to die in a treadmill. Yeah. Either either I'm going to die or you're going to get off before me. When that's your mindset, like you will not lose. And I think people, they hear these things, but they do not let them set in. That is the secret, that there is no secret. <laughs> and you just have to outwork those who want the same thing you do. Yeah, there's uh, another quote. By, this is the quote section of the show where we just <laughs> yeah. rattle, rattle off quotes. I can, um, I can rattle a whole bunch <laughs> off. <yeah>. Me too. <laughs> but, you know, they're quotes for a reason, so. So it's cool. But uh, Byron Katie says, you can have anything you want in life if you're willing to ask a thousand people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Most people aren't willing to ask a hundred people. They're not. Yeah. They're afraid that that what they're asking for, they don't deserve, or they're afraid that what they're trying to offer isn't, they're not worthy of it or whatever it is. These weird conversations that we have in our head that honestly no one else is having in their head. We have it and it stops us, yet no one else is thinking the same thing we are. Yeah, exactly. Where does um, American Ninja Warrior come into the picture? Oh, that was that was last year by accident. <laughs> so, 
So American Ninja Warriors is a TV show in, in, in America, uh, and it stemmed off of this you know show in Japan, and it's a bunch of these little people jumping on these obstacles, trying to get through all these weird stuff where you hang with your hands. And and it's this show that it's, it's in America. They do a great job of telling stories and then giving everyday people opportunities to, to do incredible things. Whether some people have no legs or they can't see or, you know, they've, they've lost a bunch of weight. And so um, my story of, of my craziness in life got me to the show. And my wife actually filled the application out without me knowing. She's like, hey, I'm filling this thing out. It needs a picture and a video. Do you mind, <laughs> mind doing it? I was like, uh, OK. I looked it up. I was like, I'm not going to be able to do this because I'm a 225-plus pound guy. When, they, when I was filling the application, I was 240 pounds. I was a big dude. And most of the guys in the show, like heavy guys, are 170 pounds. So we're already talking about, you know, and I don't know if you guys use kilos, but we're already talking about a good difference of potentially – It's like 110 kilos. Yeah. We're talking a 70-pound difference. Hmm. So it's like 30 – like around 30 kilos difference, right? And I'm supposed to go do the same thing. So anyways, they give me this show and I'm like, I'm not going to do it. But they give me a call and they're like, hey, we want you on. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to do it. So I have to train to go on this show and I have to lose a bunch of weight. I get down to like 225-ish. I'm still the biggest guy out there. And I go to this, this show and they did an interview with me. They wanted to know my story and everything it was all fun. And then what ended up happening was at the end of the interview, they're like, all right, now go hit a buzzer. Like, and I was like, I'm going to like, oh, we know. And they kind of said it in this way, like joking, like they didn't expect me to. What I didn't know is there'd never been a previous NFL player on the show who made it more than three obstacles. Wow. So I was like, oh, three obstacles. Like I didn't know this. So I go through. Of 135 people, I was the 10th fastest, and I got to the very end, hit a buzzer. Wasn't supposed to happen. Wow. And so it was even more amazing for them because a big guy kind of, you know, is the one that, that was able to get through and a football player. So it was good notoriety for both me and for them. Uh, but it was great, man. It all it all went really well, and it's it's been a blast kind of figuring out that world because it's a whole different world, different people, um, different type of athleticism. And I think what's cool is the entire family can do it. There's a place nearby that we go to, and my kids go do it. And my wife goes and does it. Like we all do it. It's pretty awesome. And is that, did it give you a taste for the TV world at all? Uh, the TV world? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I got some get some pub on TV. It's nothing crazy, but it's uh, it's cool. I mean, you do get some some notoriety from people that that have seen the show and they call. I've got some speaking engagements from it, which has been really awesome. Uh, and then I get some cool messages from people who experience some stuff they never want to talk about. Um, but I was actually able to, I guess, in a sense, inspire them in some ways to actually come out and talk and share more, which has been pretty cool. So I've been able to reach more people inadvertently just by going on a TV show and, and doing my thing. It's crazy how the journey pans out. Like you can only really see the effect these things have looking backwards. Yeah. It's crazy never, the never things that come up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything else you want to share for the listeners? Any other uh, wisdom or anything that you want to tell the people listening? Oh, man. I mean, I feel like there is, but I don't know exactly what would be the best <laughs> stuff. I mean, I think for me that, that what I, I like people to leave moments with me is just some kind of peace of clear and what they've, they've got. And I never know what exactly it is. I say things. Sometimes people get it. Sometimes they don't. Uh, like I say, get it, get something from it. But if I was to say I want someone to take this specific thing from me, uh, it's a quote that I made, and it's a simple quote. And it says there are two types of people in this world. There are those that work. There are those that watch them work. I don't mind the audience. And I think for me it's perspectively saying if you want something, you have to work or you have to watch somebody else work and earn it. And I think it's kind of what we've been talking about this whole time. And you have to be completely okay with doing it and having an audience because the audience isn't always going to love you. 
there, there's going to be heckling. There's going to be judgment. There's going to be, you know, things that are, are difficult. And I think because of it, we as people, one of the biggest reasons we don't go after something is because we have these fears of rejection. Uh, and, and when you're able to overcome those those fears enough to put yourself out there, you'll be fine working and letting other people watch you because that is how you find success. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one though, right? It's a tough one for people to get past. But yeah. it's that quote, you know, that the credit belongs to those who are in the arena, not to the mm-hmm. critics. Um, True. Yeah, but people have a lot of fear around being judged. Yeah, or having everybody does. Yeah, yeah, cool. So your um, your story is just, uh, I think, what's most inspiring for everyone. What I get from you is that the optimism and the the relentlessness to never give up, no matter how hard it is. Thank you. I yeah. appreciate it, man. Yeah, you're welcome. And and if people want to find you or people want to learn more about you, what's the best place to to find you? Oh, man, you can go to a couple places. One, you can go to uh, like Instagram or Facebook. They're both at Anthony Trucks. Uh, if you want to get more information on the company, you go to anthonytrucks.com. Uh, and then I do coaching. And one of the big things I have is full, like laid out structure. I, I teach people to go from dreaming to doing. I, I, the ideas you have, how to actually start doing those things. It's not just tactical, but it's also like life foundation type stuff, mental aspects, constructs, things that are stopping you. And then understanding how to operate as a human being to actually accomplish things. And so if they want to do that, the best thing to do is go to trustyourhustle.com. Uh, and that's the place where I actually have a quiz people can take to find out what their thrive type is. Because we want to go from surviving to thriving. And thriving is a big piece in life. So when you understand your type, you can understand how to move forwards from it. What, what are the thrive types? The, the different oh, thrive man. Types? Yeah. Hopeful, foolish, surviving and thriving. And so surviving is like you you don't put work in, you don't have belief in yourself, you're just getting through life surviving. It's a tough place to be, but a lot of people live there. It's what leads to a lot of people taking their lives, a lot of people just getting by and doing the motions and just it sucks. Hopeful is a person who works incredibly hard, but they they don't ever have very clear self-belief or vision for where they're going. So they hope everything's going to work out. They're just hoping that it's going to pan out someday. The foolish person's one who sees opportunity who knows they're great, has great self-belief, but they're lazy. They don't do the real work necessary to get there. They don't want to put themselves out there. It's a foolish mindset to think that just because you're great, it's going to happen for you. It's the, And I don't put it fully, but it's like the whole the secret thing. If I just sit here and, and think about a million dollars, it's going to come to me. It's pretty foolish. Like you still got to do work. It's not the whole idea of the secret. And then you have thriving, a person who puts the work in, who believes in themselves and their life, it's just always moving in the right direction for some odd reason, which it's not odd. It's that they work and they believe in what they're doing and they put themselves out a little bit more than everybody else does. Wow, that's awesome, man. I love that. So you can go to trustyourhustle.com and take that quiz and see where you're at? Yeah, awesome. exactly. Okay, we'll put the links to that in the notes. Uh, appreciate you, you giving us that tool. Um, the last question we ask every man is about their dark side. And mm. I'm curious about this for you. Uh, especially you know, around sports, they talk a lot about the dark side and there's that book, Relentless, where Tim Grover talks about channeling your dark side into uh, competition and into sports. But yeah. how do you think of the dark side? Do you, do you still have a dark side? Have you found a way to embrace your dark side? Oh, man. It's funny because the dark side could be a little bit everything, I think. Sure. Uh, my dark side, I don't know if it's really dark. It's not like a bad negative thing. I grew up in a lot of crazy, and so because of that, uh, I have that switch. Like I had a survival switch and that switch still exists. Don't get me wrong. There's a situation a few years ago I had to shoot someone in the leg because they were trying to break into my house. Like wow. and I had no qualms, no issues. Like I, I've, I've, I'm not an angel or a saint, but at the same time, like I don't want to be that person openly. It's not, that's not who I really am. It's just who I may have to be if the situation calls for it. Uh, but that dark side comes from my, my years of just survival mode, being around people who were literally trying to harm me. 
And so that drives me in a sense of I comprehend what life could be. And it drives me in a sense of gratitude for everything I do actually have. So I'm starting thinking about like, you know, what my problems are like. It's Cadillac problems. They're, they're not that bad. Cadillacs are nice, smooth vehicles out here. And so Cadillacs, like you can be on a bumpy road, but it still is a smooth ride. And so for me, it's like I see my problems as that bumpy road, but I'm a Cadillac. I can handle them. They're not that crazy because I could be doing so, so much worse. Yeah, nice. And so you don't, you know, the, the, the things that have happened to you in your past, they don't show up in any negative ways that often? No, not that I know of. I mean, I haven't had anything crazy that's popped up and been like nuts uh, really at all. I think that's kind of the cool thing is is for me, I, I haven't brought any of the past in because I open up and share everything. Yeah. I don't have I don't have any skeletons. That's pretty much the best way I can explain. Like I've I've written a book that tells literally everything about my life that I can imagine. Like there's there's nothing else. I can, there's no one that can pop up and be like, oh, I know this thing about this guy. <laughs> you know, it's it's literally like that. You ever watch the eight mile movie with with uh, Eminem? Yeah. Same thing. He's like at the end, like, what are you going to say? He could say all stuff bad about you. He goes, he might. And so he does a whole rap talking about all his bad stuff. So the other guy has nothing to say about him. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't really do that. But I, I share stories about my life openly, transparently, because I don't ever want anybody to have something to hold over me because it'll, it'll make me feel fearful about putting my soul into the world. But at the same time, every dark thing I've done, someone else has done or done worse. And the lesson I can share from that is way more beneficial to the world than me hiding it. Oh, man. It's, a, it's another great lesson. This, this shows me full of them. But, you know, the, uh, I'm a big stand for authenticity, whatever that looks like. And opening up your dark side and sharing it and learning to, you know, overcome some of the shame of the dark side and everything. There's such yeah. an incredible benefit on the other side of being able to live that kind of life of being light and free and authentic and knowing that everything's out there. I agree. Fully yeah. agree. Anthony, thanks for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure to get to know you. And I hope we do this again sometime. Yeah, man, count me in. I'm down. Awesome. Well, there you have it, folks. My conversation with the awesome Anthony Trikes. I hope you enjoyed that one. Go and check out Anthony's website. And if you can, share this episode around Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, wherever you see it. Give it a like and share it around if you get the chance. Don't forget to visit Unsettled, beunsettled.co use the promo code friends of unsettled to get a $150 discount. Thanks for listening guys and watching this time. And I'll be back next week with episode 43 of the Nathan Seward show. That was the Nathan Seward show. Personal conversations with powerful men. Mm-hmm.